0: Stan Prokopenko, founder of the Proko Empire, the art education empire, someday soon to be the entire internet education empire of all time. That Stan will be calling shortly. <whistles> Low- yeah. Hi, Stan. What's going on, Marshall? How's the temperature there in your studio? Oh, it's cold in here. <laughs> oh, that must be great.
1: Feels nice. I set it to sixty-four last night before I left, and I came in and it's
0: freezing. Wow. I did not do that, and <laughs> I'm. It, I had a little air conditioning on just before this, but I have it off now, and it's really sweltering in here. Yeah. About an hour or so ago, I I talked with Stan on the phone and he said, hey Marshall, how you doing? And it was more energy than I've ever heard him use in a telephone conversation. I thought, are we being recorded or what? How you doing there, Marshall? you ready for today? You all up for today? And I think I know why now. Oh, yeah. I'm trying to stay warm, Marshall. Yeah, for those of you who don't know, if you want your energy to go up, get cold. If you want your energy to go down, get warm. Typically, I know there's exceptions. Yeah. Good to see you, you're looking chipper. You're making me feel a few degrees cooler just by contact. Yeah,
1: well, you've always been cool just because you hang out with me.
0: (laughs) Oh, thanks. That's the nicest compliment. (laughs) The (laughs) nicest compliment. (laughs) For whom? For you or for me? For for both of us. Oh, okay, yeah. It's cool because I'm hanging out with you and I'm cool and by contact, that's good enough for me. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Anyway, yeah, let's start. Uh, This is the Draftsman Podcast. I'm Marshall Vandruff. And I'm Stanford Kopenko. We're going to talk today about probably something important, you think?
1: You know, you take the lead, Marshall. You know what you're doing, you're the professional.
0: How much did you have to say about this topic?
1: Not much, I told you. I don't even know what this episode's about. Let's talk
0: a little about the history of how this happened. (laughs) Okay. A number of times we have had conversations and people have asked questions by way of voicemail about... uh, Well, Mike Polinski just asked a few episodes ago about mannerism. And uh, the concern, what is mannerism? It's going to be on our list of deadly sins and I was not raised in an environment that talked about the seven deadly sins. I know that some branches of Christianity emphasize the seven deadly sins. I'm not even sure I can name all seven of them. But as I always understood it, the deadly sins, even if you are not religious, they are activities that, if you pursue unrestrained, will destroy you or those around you. And John Gardner, in his book, The Art of Fiction, talked about faults of the soul. Now, these are not things that will make you lose your career, they are things that will, will violate good practices in the spirit of art. And they're they're esoteric, they're, they're kind of lofty, they take some explaining and I suggested maybe we should have a, a, an episode on them. However, I do want to make a distinction beforehand that these things that might be called the faults of the soul or the so-called deadly sins are not things that will keep you from making money. In fact, some of them will make it so that you'll probably make more money.
1: Okay so that so it's about making art not necessarily having a career that's what these are focused on
0: That's right Okay. A number of the things we've dealt with already are the the sins that keep you from having a career and those would be things like incompetence, having a lack of people skills can damage your career, not being a good business person can damage your career, not having anything in you that can sell yourself. I think we'll probably come back to those practical things but I figured if we had, if we've got two seasons of Draftsmen, we might as well have one on something that artists have talked about for a long time. These are things that, that go back many generations of, of that get in the way of being an effective artist for good in the world. Let's say that.
1: Let's, let's get into it. You have some big words in the notes here, I don't
0: even know what they mean. Okay. <laughs> the first one is pandering. I know what that one means. The more common word for it is selling out. This would be exemplified by a very famous story of a man who made more money in the late 20th century and even into the first part of the 21st century as an artist of anybody I know. I mean, he made countless millions of dollars and he did it by apparently, this is the story I'm told, I haven't verified this, he interviewed people, uh, it might have even been door to door, but he interviewed people of what kind of art would you buy? to put in your house. And he did that enough to where he saw that people wanted a certain kind of art. Cottages by streams in the woods with warm light coming through the windows and a little bit of fire coming out of the chimney. And based on that research, he developed a series of paintings that sold to the point of where every middle-class American loved that art so much that it turned into a huge empire. Now, I don't want to make a judgment on... I'm going to try not to make a judgment on some of these things. That to me is an example of the the kind of marketing research that leads to tremendous success like the hamburger chain that finds out if they just increase the amount of sugar in their hamburger bun to a full teaspoon they'll sell more hamburgers and then they sell billions of hamburgers and it was because that's what people wanted. They wanted more sugar, they wanted a particular thing and it's not like I have this to give to you, it's that's what you want, I'll meet it. Huge success. Leo Tolstoy who wrote a book called What is Art would die all over again. But. Leo Tolstoy didn't have hundreds of millions of dollars as a result of his art and many who are critical of it may be secretly jealous. There's the description of sin number one, pandering. Okay, do you have any thoughts about it, Stan?
1: You didn't even mention his name, did you? What, do you know who it is? Well, of course, Thomas Kincaid obviously, but you didn't say his name, right? No, I didn't say his name. You did? <laughs> That's funny. I bet the audience is like, who is this? A lot of people probably figured it out, but you know, it's funny. I, I'm really embarrassed to say when I was uh, a young artist, I really enjoyed
0: his work. I understand. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I saw your eyebrows just
1: now. You're like, what? <laughs> I, I, I really liked it. He And I think it was because I wasn't exposed to that much art at that point yet. Um, You know, at that point, I I haven't seen any of the Russian art that I fell in love with afterwards. A lot of the, even the American illustrators, like the only one I knew at that point was like Norman Rockwell and I was in love with him as well. I still actually still really enjoyed Rockwell but um, I just didn't know much and Kincaid was everywhere. I would go into Barnes and Nobles and read and the only art I was really exposed to there on like. In the front shelf when you walk in was like a calendar by Thomas Kincaid with all his work or something, and I, I wasn't just drawn to his work; it was also just like, wow, this guy's so famous, like he must be good. <laughs> so he did something right. He did
0: something right. He wasn't he wasn't horrible. Uh, well, well, it depends on who you ask.
1: But now looking back, it's like ah, oh, eh, so cheesy. It's like
0: I didn't mention his name because I don't know that that story about his research was was true. I've heard it two or three times removed and so those kind of stories uh, sometimes take on their own life and mm. last season, I told a story about Frank Frazetta and the one <laughs> night experience with the Bridgman book and who he presented it to and I got I got at least one thing. I think there were two things that I got wrong and people responded to that and so yeah, I did not look up this story to, to verify the fact.
1: Well, hey, that's good though. People are... Keeping you accountable.
0: (laughs) That is good, that is the way it should be.
1: And they correct you in the comments, that's good, yeah. The truth comes out. That's right. And it's good that you, now you know the truth and you know, instead of telling people privately about it and never getting corrected. That's right. Now you'll tell everyone the correct thing.
0: That is the way it should be. Yeah. Okay, now back to Thomas Kincaid. Yeah. About 15 years ago or so, there was a, they did a show of his work at Cal State Fullerton. Really? And uh, you know, I wasn't that familiar with his work. I knew he worked for—he had worked, I think, for Ralph Bakshi, and he had worked, I think, uh, on the same a project that James Gurney had worked on too, or something. He has a history with a number of illustrators, and of course, he rocketed beyond all of them for his success. And when you become that big and successful, you also become a target. And they decided to do a show of his work at Cal State Fullerton, and he received—or somebody received—death <laughs> threats over that show. What do you mean somebody? Uh, I don't remember was it the curator or whether it was him but... Oh, okay. The rage that came out and I remember one of my students saying, how could anybody feel that strongly that I hate your cottages so much (laughs) I want you to die. And I, I did not have that much of an opinion and I went in to see the show And I looked at the work and I saw the richness of what he did with the paint and I had two feelings, one right after each other. One was, that is gorgeous and then within one or two heartbeats afterward, I felt like I was gonna throw up. (laughs) And then you sent the death threat. No, no, no. no. (laughs) I felt like it was gorgeous to the part of me that was not a sensitive viewer, that was younger, that was more naive, that didn't look often. That just you just dump more artificial coloring and sugar in there and it's gonna. oh! It gave me a feeling that reminded me one time when I went by a one-hour photo processing, they used to have these one-hour photo processing places in malls where they used chemicals to develop your film. And I remember going down the elevator in the Buena Park Mall and getting a whiff of French onion soup. It was, oh, that's delicious. And then I realized it wasn't French onion soup. It was the chemicals from the one-hour photo processing place. And I almost felt like I was going to throw up. That's what happened when I looked at that work. Now I'm. I do not say that the work is bad. Some people will say that. I say that to a person who spends a lot of time eating. And paying attention to flavors, that you start to feel as if this is there's something that's wrong with this flavor. It is a subjective judgment. And uh that, that's all I'll say about Kincaid's work.
1: Yeah, I, I used to drink a lot of soda and, and sugary drinks, and now my taste buds have matured and I don't I don't I don't do that anymore.
0: Yeah, look at that. What is that?
1: Oh, this? Oh, this is a, yeah. this is a, a sugary
0: Starbucks drink. Well, <laughs> glad, glad to see yeah. your maturity level. Yeah,
1: but it's got tea in it, so it's okay.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is just pure, this is just pure black coffee. You can't see it, I don't think. I want you to see that that is some of the healthiest stuff on the planet. Okay. Uh, now, I think that we should not talk about these sins, without talking about the solution, the virtues. Uh, but this thing about pandering connects with one of the other faults of the soul that John Gardner talked about and that is sentimentality which is specifically the kind of pandering that goes on in Kincaid's work. Okay. Sentimentality, should I describe Should I define it? Yes. It's sweetness overdone. It's beyond sugar to saccharin. You say, guys, you keep putting sugar in here, Wow, it really sweetens it up, it just isn't enough. Can we fake it? Can we make chemical sugars that amp it up even more and yeah, we can and let's fill it with that and it'll sell even better. Uh, I've called it the too many violins problem. The uh, the The audience is supposed to weep at this point and feel feelings and we bring in the music Uh, pulling too hard on the heartstrings, pulling too obviously on the heartstrings, the Victorians were famous for it, Uh, the uh, barbershop quartets, oh, there's a barbershop quartet song. Just break the news
1: to mother, she knows how dear I love her and tell her
0: I'm not coming home Those are the problem of overdoing the positive side of life to where it becomes uh, almost offensively artificial to people who don't like that kind of thing, and really effective to people who do. So pandering and sentimentality will go together.
1: Now let me get it straight then. So are, do they overlap? Or is sentimentality a branch of pandering, so is all sentimentality a form of pandering, or is it that there's some that are not? Do you know what I mean How are they related exactly?
0: Sentimentality would be a form of pandering yes, it would be a, a subset you know it is it is something Spielberg has been been uh, accused of many times the too many violins problem, the overdoing it uh, some uh, one critic said that the color purple they the when, when there was blood, it was, it was sugar syrup blood. It felt that way. There was something about it that didn't feel altogether honest. Rockwell has certainly been criticized for this. I am completely forgiving of Rockwell for any sentimentality for two reasons. One is he did not pretend to do anything more than make candy. And he, he was explicit about that and he even said that a good, a good deal of the reason was because it paid better. This is a guy who was honest in his motives. Um. There's another thing. In the 1960s, he went the other way and he included dead bodies and murder and real bloodshed in his pictures and it was because by that time... He was an old man and he felt like there is something wrong in this country and it needs to be showcased in my illustrations, the Norman Rockwell. So I hold him in high esteem for having acknowledged that he was pandering by way of sentimentality and doing a great job of it, one of the best jobs anybody ever did of it with wonderful counterpoints and also at some point say, I'm going to play a different kind of music because I'm seeing a different reality in the culture.
1: Okay. So I like the second reason. But the first one, uh, I don't quite understand. So, because he was honest and he didn't try to hide it, it makes it okay to, to do that? I mean, was, was Thomas Kincaid hiding the fact that he was pandering? I feel like he was pretty obviously okay with the fact that he was doing this, very open with it. Does that make it okay that he was pandering? I don't know. Like I'm I'm confused about why these would even matter if you could just be open about it and it makes it all okay.
0: Let me be honest. (laughs) Okay. I love Norman Rockwell's work. (laughs) Okay and I don't love Thomas Kincaid's work.
1: Okay, so it's okay for Norman Rockwell because you like him. Because yeah, that's, that's <laughs> the only
0: reason really. I'm, okay. I am not going to go at it with an art critics. The art critics will have all sorts, they have long tomes about why T- Thomas Kincaid isn't art and they may be right. And I know that they, they don't include Norman Rockwell in the pantheon of artists and they may be right. So, I don't know, I'm not weighing in on that one. I'm just weighing in on that Norman Rockwell has certainly been criticized for sentimentality, I'm not criticizing for the, him for that. And I think what we should probably do now is, uh, is move to the, the, uh, the virtues that are the counterpoints of these.
1: Yeah. Well, one more thing though. Go ahead. I, I gotta ask you a question. What is the point of knowing about these sins in the first place?
0: We may have friends who don't mind that we interrupt them all the time because we have another reason that we hang out with them. But somebody that's watching it can say, that's not a good way to have a conversation. Uh, Or when somebody has an opinion, we immediately give the other side of the opinion that it might be better to handle the conversation in another way. I think that it can enrich us in our experiences if we are willing to put some negative labels on activities that don't bring out our best and then point to some activities that will bring out our best and I don't I don't want this to be too heavy handed, I just think th- these are worth talking about. I, I, I think that they can make our art richer. I do think that what happened with Norman Rockwell was an admirable thing.
1: Do you feel like... Thomas Kincaid do, didn't do his best because he pandered? I don't know. I, I don't know either, I, I'm just curious.
0: I'll admit that he might have done his best by doing exactly that. This is a guy who's a candy maker yeah. and he dumps the saccharin in it and that saccharin is so satisfying to people who want that, that flavor when they take that, that in. That it's, it's certainly satisfying to somebody so I, I don't want to weigh in on that.
1: Right. And if, if that's what he wanted to do... If he was more of a business guy than uh, a painter, a traditional painter, like that that's not really pandering. You're giving people what they want. That's, that's what business is. You, 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 you give your customers what they want. So, he's doing exactly what he should be doing if, if business was his art and paint was just his product. Yeah. <laughs> But I guess, oh, did I just basically answer the question? (laughs) You did. The point of... (laughs) Shit!
0: Thomas Kincaid was of all the people I know, the greatest artist of marketing of the late 20th and early 21st century. Nobody I know made more money than him. Okay. Sentimentality is is one end of the spectrum. We got another one coming up, frigidity that's going to be the opposite end of that spectrum.
1: Well, hold on. Before we move on to that, I'm still stuck on the pandering thing. Okay. We focused on the sentimentality part of pandering quite a bit and then we had sentimentality after that. Can we talk about other ways of pandering other than just adding a lot of sugar so that we get a bigger picture of it? Sure.
0: I think Robert Beverly Hale mentioned that some research showed that the paintings that would sell the most would be white horses white horses running. Uh, a friend of mine told me that he knew of some, some research that showed the things that sell the least will be angular abstracts. If you've got round abstracts, people are going to more likely want to put them in their living room but if you've got angular ones, they don't want them in their living room. Gosh, you could cut your, cut your skin on that stuff. Now, that's research and that friend who told me about that research, was someone who did paintings, he made a pretty good living doing paintings for hotel rooms where they do original watercolors and you'd have to crank these things out by the scores and they would pay you a certain amount of money but that way they could have these watercolors in these, these hotel rooms. So, selling out, you know, doing the thing that sells, again, I'm not as hard on it because I made my living as a panderer to art, to ad agencies. I sold out, 90% of my money came from serving what advertising agencies needed and adjusting my work toward what they needed.
1: Then I have a question that might lead to now the good stuff, so let's see if it does. Okay. A lot of people, I'd say most working artists work in commercial art. They work for, for a studio, someone that tells them exactly what to do. They get paid for their job for creating the art yeah. and I mean, in a way that's, that's selling out. You're, you're, you know, you work for a Disney studio that tells you exactly what style to draw in because you have one guy determining the style of this film, you're, you're just doing what they want. You're, you're, create, you're not really an artist at that point, you're a craftsman just doing stuff that someone's telling you to do. So, is it okay?
0: Father Marshall.
1: (laughs) Are these good things that you're about to list, do they apply now to all these other artists that work for a studio that makes it okay for them to sell out?
0: The lines of judgment get very blurry here. Yeah. There are people who are working for a production designer, an art director, a film director who they are on board with the project and enthusiastic yeah. about it and and yeah. And then there are others who say, you know, it's a job, it's a job and I don't think it's wrong. John Cleese went on David Letterman back in the 80s I think it was and David Letterman pointed out that you're, you're doing commercials and he said, I'm a whore. And he said, but I've heard that they're good commercials, he said, I'm a good whore.
1: The ones I've heard are very, very nicely done, very distinctly. I'm a good good whore, you know.
0: (laughs) And I remember thinking about that and thinking there is, there's nothing morally wrong that I can figure with a person saying, I am going to sell this because it makes me money and I'll save the money and I can have a really good long-term relationship. And just recognize those other ones are. I'm doing that as a business. Uh, it makes sense to me that he is he's doing the thing that pays his bills, so that he can do what he wants to on the side. I I don't see it. I don't make a yeah. judgment on it.
1: Yeah, Carl uh, Kapinski called himself a whore too. In my oh, interview, okay. yeah, in my interview, he he was telling a story about how when he goes to conventions, a lot of people come up to him with cards that they that he painted. You know, like. Uh, was it? Does he work for magic? I think it's magic together. Um, I might be wrong, god damn it. Uh, but it's, you know, the cards with the painting on it and it's the character with the powers. <laughs> people are throwing stuff at the screen right now. Um, and people would come up and they'd say, can you modify this? Can you like customize it? Can you paint over it?
0: You do alterations and I, I said, what do you mean? And he said, yeah, draw over the uh, picture. And I thought I've spent a week on that. You want me to just scribble on it? He said, "Yeah, put Mickey Mouse ears on him." I also had a guy who just wanted me to draw spurting. What? Spurting. Yeah, you know, it's like yeah, I know (laughs) the the stuff that comes from the end. He wanted that on there. Did you do that? I I didn't want to, but he was really insistent, so I did a very quick job. Pressure. Yeah. And then three come years, on, man. yeah. Come on, I mean, draw me. a... He was there, just shouting, "Draw me a, d- draw me a, d- alright, draw me a." D-. Oh my god! And then the best bit was, I went back to a convention maybe three years later, and the same dude turned up.
1: Oh no! You're like, not you again. Yeah.
0: He said, "Don't worry, I want you to draw f- this time." Oh my
1: god! I was this like, "Oh, is- this is
0: awful!" <laughs>
1: Turn off the cameras. <laughs> it was <laughs> awful and I did it <laughs> you did it. such a hole are you sure you want this recorded <laughs> but but the thing is that he he got better at it at first the people were giving them sharpies giving them sharpies and he would do it in this sharpie trying to get a good drawing out of this thick thing on a postage size thing and he would put like a a transparent gesso on it, and then he brought little paint brushes and ac- like acrylics or something, and then he would paint on them. So he got really good at it. He 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 made it into his own thing. He he brought his art into it rather than just being a, a whore.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah. That's that's nice. Yeah. And <laughs> these questions that you're asking though are also they have this thing. Uh, can you give us the final word on this, Marshall? Let's pull the camera back up over these. Okay. These are what John Gardner called faults of the soul. They are things that we, should, we are looking at, we're not trying to make rules. Do you know what the golden rule is? Uh,
1: tr- there's two of them then. What, treat thy neighbor the way you want to be treated and...
0: That's the, that's the original one that was called the golden rule, that's from Jesus. That's <laughs> okay. Whatever, however you want to be treated yourself, treat other people that way.
1: Yeah. The other one is the golden ratio, which is sometimes called the golden rule. No,
0: no, (laughs) no. The other one is the capitalist perversion, but truth truth of it, which is whoever has the gold makes the rules. Okay. The person who is hiring the artist for the project makes the rules. They have the power to do that. And so, if we're willing to be hired, we, we follow the rules of the person. But a person who's a good hirer knows how to bring it out. We've talked about, uh, about that before. Okay, here's, here is the solution I think to the pandering thing. Okay. I mean, if we really want to be sure we're not pandering is what Robert McKee talks about, write the truth. Norman Rockwell stopped pandering because he was emotionally affected by social events and he put truths in there that he felt he had neglected through his career. Uh, If a person writes the truth or paints the truth or draws the truth, they are likely to shrink their audience. Uh, Rembrandt's lack of flattering his subjects, Rembrandt's mashed potato people, Rembrandt is arguably the, the, the greatest at his kind of art ever but his stuff was not flattering and I think that it affected his success. Van Gogh is the extreme example of it. Van Gogh did not sell out. Van Gogh did not get the rewards of his labor. His brother was one of the great champions of art history for believing in the guy and supporting him so he could do the thing that he felt needed to be done that was not going to conform to what the, the people who make the rules say your stuff will not be acknowledged as art if you do that and he did it anyway. So th- there you know, there's one way to know that you're keeping your integrity if you're willing to be poor for your integrity. Your priorities become revealed and I don't think there's anything wrong with it. My priority is that I need to pay my bills. If you are looking to me for answers, if any of you are <laughs> looking to me to say, Marshall, Is it wrong to sell out? (laughs) I'm not going to tell you that. Okay. Okay, should we move to the sentimentality one? Sure. I remember Kubrick who would never be uh, uh, accused of sentimentality. Uh, But I remember him talking in an interview about the difference between sentiment which is legitimate compassion and concern for the human condition, legitimate feelings of adoration, For children, small animals, uh, 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 loving condescension is what one author called it. Uh, He talked about a difference between the two of them, but he didn't explain the difference. The most I could get from it was to let the events speak for themselves, that there's a value in the artist understating these things. Don Richardson, the TV director who was my teacher, talked about when things get sweet, counterpoint them with flaws. Uh, This is why Rockwell's sentimentality works so well for me, is that there is an abundance of sweetness but every one of these people is working out of some motive of pride or selfishness or something. There is a humor in there, an irony in it that the the cutest baby in the world will, will cover you with body fluids. So, Don Richardson said when you have a sentimental speech, be sure it's given in a non-sentimental way and he explained that the old Andy Hardy movies did it beautifully. I've never seen the Andy Hardy movies but he said when they have sentimental speeches, they had them given while somebody's doing some menial task or helping somebody to tie their shoe or washing dishes or whatever else so that it pulls it away from the swelling violins and the uh, the the speech that is calling attention to itself as sentimental and oh, here's the best example of it. The commentary on Paper Moon. If you haven't seen Paper Moon, see Paper Moon. The DVD has a commentary by Peter Bogdanovich, the one who directed it and he talks in that commentary about treading the line between he could have pushed it in a way that would have made it more sentimental. And he chose not to and I think he made a more effective sentiment as a result. Lasse Hallstrom uh, is another uh, really accomplished director at knowing how to understate sentiment so that you do the feeling rather than the filmmaker doing all of the feeling for you. And if you sit back and say, wow, that's some impressive crying that that character is doing that's probably because they're trying too hard to pull on those heartstrings. Better if it's going to bring it out of the audience. Hmm. Okay, I've talked a long time on that. What's the next thing? It's mannerism. It's what Mike Polensky asked Mannerism is fakeness. Mannerism is insincerity. I think John Gardner called them ticks of conceit. Pretense, when people say art is pretentious. Putting on airs. I've seen John Singer Sargent do those brush strokes. Watch me do those brush strokes. I'm as good as John Singer Sargent. Uh, camera waving, flashy technique, showing off. Uh, anything that calls attention to how well I'm doing the job is mannerism, uh, pretense. Hmm. Go ahead, go ahead. I can tell you're you're confused, and I'm tired of hearing my own voice.
1: I don't know. I I guess I I I really appreciate some that sometimes. When when it was in uh, War of Art where we say, hey, he he said every once in a while it's great to do that 360 backflip or tornado slam dunk and show your boys that tomahawk, yeah, tomahawk, whatever. Show the boys (laughs) you're still you know doing. Here to do business or whatever. You still got, yeah. Yes, she still got it. I, I don't know, I appreciate it. A little bit of flashiness makes it fun sometimes. I mean, are you saying that too much of that?
0: Let's change it from faults or yeah. even sins to pitfalls. A, a pitfall is something that you could fall into or you could jump over. And for mannerism, uh, all of us, want to impress. So, if we try too hard to impress and then if we're able to impress, I mentioned Paganini during that episode that Mike Polinsky asked about, why not impress? You know, uh, stand-up comedians who used to deliver one-liners, one-liners are such an obvious example of watch how impressive I can uh, put out this one funny line. Uh, guitar solos are often meant to impress. Look at how I played the guitar. Robin Williams as a comedian, even though it wasn't one-liners, Robin Williams was so amped up that you just wanted to watch him because he was amazingly impressive. But there is a kind of conceit of is this awesome and the rightful, the rightful response is yeah, those are are awesome and they deserve to be praised for their uniqueness even if they are, are, are sort of overdone. So, I guess... If you're going to be mannered, let your manner be your selling point. Yeah. And that way you can combine mannerism and selling out together.
1: <laughs> and sentimentality.
0: Yeah, it might be that I watch watch me use these so-called faults to my advantage.
1: Yeah, let's combine all of them and become the greatest artist of all time.
0: It could be a creative <laughs> challenge. Yeah. (laughs) Genius! Here's a way to look at this that might be healthier than looking at these as virtues and, and sins. It might be to see them as a spectrum that my work is very mannered over here and my work is very sincere. I mean this. It's not trying to fake anything. It's not trying to call attention to how uniquely I'm doing it, it's that the way I'm doing it, I mean it. If there's good mannerism and bad mannerism, maybe good mannerism is sincerity that happens to be quirky.
1: I get it now. I, I, I think I was too focused on it being good and bad and, and not about it. This is a potential thing that could lead you in the wrong direction so just watch out. Um, so yeah, let's, let, let's move on to the next two things and I'll keep that in mind.
0: The next one is a hard one. The next one is the one that I'm, I have the least to say about. John Gardner calls it frigidity. It is, uh, there may be a better term but I would call it violence for thrills sake. It is uh, something some filmmakers are famous for, oh, I'm going to go see that film because it's going to have some really awesome, horrific violence in it. It is the, the appeal that cruelty has to us and uh, watching bodies get torn apart and that kind of thing. Uh, cruelty to animals as spectacle used to be a part of this country's culture and you find it in some illustrators work. Some illustrators that I have even mentioned how much I admire them and when I see oh gosh, you include that in there, that will, that will always be a part of some people's. Pandering, some people's, I can get a market if I do this. And I do think there is something wrong with it. And uh, I think the solution is to sit down and really look at it with somebody, some people that you care about, and ask for the effect of this. I've recommended, with the caveat that it's rated R for brutal violence, I've recommended the movie Fresh. And if you watched that movie and you liked it, don't miss Boaz Yakin's commentary on that film and how he handled violence in that film. He was deliberately, self-consciously, calculatedly choosing a way to handle violence differently than most filmmakers do so that it would have a different effect and it did before I Ever listen to that commentary, I remember feeling a completely different set of feelings about human tragedy than I did in most films. It felt more real to me than anything I'd felt up to that point. We should also talk about how this applies to humor. On the other extreme, if you haven't seen the movie The Death of Stalin, it's rated R for language and violence. I thought it was horribly funny and a discussion prompter for the limits of humor
1: we're talking about considering the effect that something will have on someone. I mean, isn't there always two opposing effects? You know, doing something can affect one group positively and then the opposite group negatively and you have to choose sides.
0: I watched a documentary this last year called The Last Laugh. It opened the lid on what do you do with the humor of the Holocaust. What? What do you mean? Yes, Jewish humor about the Holocaust. It is a discomforting documentary uh, and it certainly will prompt discussion but that that is an example that when you open up the lid, on this thing about what do you make jokes about and what do you not make jokes about? How do you handle the horribleness of the human condition in entertainment? All of this stuff that I've been saying, and giving my opinion, all gets uh, blasted away into, into vapor because it is a more difficult subject. Two years ago, for the first time in my life, I heard students use the term punching down versus punching up. And they were surprised I hadn't heard that, but that, that makes a lot of sense to me. That if the, the victim of your humor is someone who has power over people socially, that's more fair game than punching down is tacky.
1: Yeah, but see now you're, you're, you're giving an opinion, you're saying that's fair game. So everyone has to decide what is fair game.
0: Hey, here's, here's how we could unpack this, yeah. There's a, there is a guy, Steven Gimble who has a great course called The Philosophy of Humor. I'm not through with it, I'm going through it slowly and with a friend and discussing this stuff. It is true to its name. It's a course in the philosophy of humor. But he's such a, a thoughtful and, and entertaining and interesting guy that I would love to delve into this more about where is the line with cruelty of humor? I don't know. I'm trying to find that. I'm, I'm interested in this. Okay, I've got one more. Okay, okay. Continue. This is the one that I have been so guilty of that when I understood it from John Gardner's book, it put me into several years of introspection and it was part of what led me to stop calling myself an artist so much as a teacher. It is didacticism. Didacticism is preachiness. It's not making art, but making propaganda. It is the image or the story or the song as a mask for a sermon. One of the tackiest things you can do socially is to invite people over for dinner, and then when they come there for dinner, offer them the pyramid scheme business opportunity of selling uh, and if, if, they're, if they know you're inviting them over so that you can talk about joining your organization uh, to become a distributor for these products, yeah. that's okay. But to do it where you invite them over for dinner and they're expecting an enjoyable time and it's all going to be a sales pitch, that is a really tacky thing to do. And when something disguises itself as entertainment or I don't know how this relates to art with a capital A and then a sermon gets snuck in there so that a person who disagrees with that point of view feels preached at, it has stepped over a boundary and there are better ways to do it but we'll we'll get to that.
1: This reminds me of a scene from *Shit's Creek. I haven't
0: seen it but go ahead.
1: There's a scene where uh, two of the characters from the show invite a bunch of their neighbors for a dinner or something or, or it's just to a party and they all arrive and, and they're trying to pitch a pyramid scheme type of product thing to everybody without really pitching it, they're just like, I love this makeup, it makes my skin feel so nice and then by the end of the night, they they finally pitch it and it turns out that all the neighbors are already part of the same uh, pyramid scheme. <laughs> is there always a lie attached to it? Is that what makes it different from, uh, that, is that what separates it from um, j- doing something trying to convince someone of doing something for a good cause is uh, you're transparent about it instead of lying about it. You're trying to hide that you're you are selling something but you're not just um, specifically saying, hey, I'm trying to convince you of this thing or making it appear like you're trying to say one thing but you're really selling another thing which is the lie. That's Isn't that a lie?
0: That's right. Yes, but, but it's a little bigger. Okay. It's a little bigger. Pull the camera up. This is supposed to be uh, a piece of entertainment. This is supposed to be a story where the events tell the truth of life and a narrator doesn't have to come in. Hmm.
1: Okay. I got some examples that I want to just bring up that I feel like they fit your example but I wonder if they actually do or not. I'm just curious.
0: Oh, go ahead, I want to hear.
1: A lot of children's movies are really, the kids think that they're there to just be entertained, but really there's there might be some learning lessons, you know, things that we're trying to teach them that are snuck in there and the kid happens to learn how to share because they watch this entertaining thing. Like, is does that fit?
0: I do think that with children's entertainment, there are different rules and I don't know what those rules are. Oh, here's a good example. Pee Wee's Christmas Special, The story itself exemplified improved behavior. Pee Wee learned a lesson and as we watched it, we were hoping he would learn that lesson. I think that it was not a sermon, I think it was an example. It was something that as a child I could lock onto, even as a grown up, it affected me and it did not need to preach, it told a story.
1: Okay. so. Having a moral in the story isn't didacticism, it's if you begin preaching that moral and saying it too directly, it becomes didacticism?
0: Uh, Yes. Okay. And there's another thing. In a child's story, you would compress that the way values were compressed in the classic American Western. There were the good guys and the bad guys and that lasted for a long time but it didn't continue to last. The neo-Western and other Westerns from other cultures, Australia in particular, uh, Australian Western directors are kind of proud of the fact that we never had that really simple division. It starts to become more complex, that moral universe. So it will be a different set of rules for children.
1: Do you have any really famous examples uh, that fall into that?
0: Anything that's a sermon at the end, hey, 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 I got the best example <laughs> but it's, it's not famous. Okay. In 1930s crime movies, there's one in particular, The Public Enemy, good film, it ends with a placard that says, the end of Tom Powers is the end of every hoodlum. It just stepped on the story like like a roller coaster ride where somebody explains that this has been designed to help improve your balance and serves as a metaphor for surviving difficult relationships.
1: Okay.
0: It was supposed to be a it was supposed to be a roller coaster ride. It wasn't supposed to be something I'm supposed to learn from. Yeah. I would bet that there are a lot of them. Right. Can you think of any? No. <laughs> well, we could ask in the comments. What are examples of movies that you would have enjoyed if they had not stepped in to give you a little sermon? If you've not felt like the author is wearing their point of view on the sleeve of the story to let you know that when you're done with this story, you're gonna think like me. How it fits into art, most of the art that I know that I see university students doing that is happening in the art department with a capital A most of it is polemic, it's preachy. It's letting me know there's something wrong with the world and here's the solution to it. And I think that when it does that, it only appeals to the people who already feel that way.
1: I, I feel like I get it now. If it's obvious that it's a, there's a lesson, this whole thing is just preaching, it's okay. But if it was, if it comes after something that wasn't preaching, now it's didacticism.
0: Okay, these were all faults of the soul and they were kind of philosophical, but the things that we normally deal with are not philosophical. These are not faults of the soul, these are more faults of neglect. The things that we've dealt with in Draftsman are... What have they been? What are the things we mainly been addressing here in Draftsman over the last almost two seasons now.
1: It's about being a better artist and a better student. That's what most of our
0: podcast is about. That's right. We spent almost... Most of that first season was about overcoming the sins of neglect, incompetence, lack of salesmanship, lack of professionalism, uh, not getting along, not doing well with people. Uh, what, What other issues do we have to address, Stan?
1: Uh, Why don't we brainstorm this privately so we have time to think other than me trying to answer that question in 30 seconds as a promise to
0: the viewers. Because I've been talking too much, I want to hear something from you.
1: Why do I need to speak? This episode was yours and you did a great job, let's just conclude and move on to the next one which is mostly me. (laughs) You just want me to keep talking? (laughs) Go away, Marshall. Uh, Alright, I'm done.
0: Okay. I hope it was helpful. (laughs) Thanks. Bye, guys!